Well, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, good to be uh, with you uh, in a way uh, today on the Lord's Day. Um, I hope you all got the email yesterday that said we're uh, hoping and planning and expecting to meet for worship together at the new building uh, on uh, May the 31st, uh, two weeks from today. Um, I am eager to be there, and I hope you all are as well. Um, I do hope you can join us today uh, at 4.30 for our weekly time of prayer. And for those of you that are interested, please stick around after that, and we'll wrap up our current series, Who is the Holy Spirit? So everyone, <clears throat> excuse me, is welcome. Well, uh, today uh, we uh, are picking up on our regular uh, summer psalm series, seeing all of life as worship through the psalms. Uh, we uh, ended last week that short eight-week series on the Heidelberg Catechism's first question and answer, and we are back to what we do every summer, um, at least for the past few years. We're going to pick up today where we left off. Um, we left off last uh, with Psalm 36 back on September uh, 1st of 2019. Um, as we turn uh, to God's Word, and please do, in fact, uh, take out your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Psalm 37. Um, as we uh, go to God's word, let's uh, go to him in prayer as well. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we acknowledge that the grass withers and the flowers fade, uh, but your word endures forever. And Father, in days of uncertainty and difficulty, we thank you that we have an anchor um, to hold us fast, and we thank you that we have an engine that can push us forward, and we thank you, Father, for your word and your spirit. May you give us today uh, understanding of your word and a growing desire and ability to put it into practice uh, in our lives for your glory and for the good of your people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to get to Psalm 37 here in just a few minutes, but we need to set the stage by uh, just thinking about Psalms. It's been a while. Um, now, the Psalms occupy, or at least should occupy, an important place both in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but also in everyday life worship, worship in all of life. Um, the Psalms are a central, literally a central part of the Scriptures, um, they're in the middle, as it were, of the Bible. Um, there are 150 chapters, 150 psalms, um, divided into five books. Um, they are at once familiar and foreign, and they're written over about 12 centuries. They are songs and prayers offered to God by Israel. Uh, the psalms can be thought of as the hymn book, the prayer book of the church. Martin Luther called the, the psalms a little Bible, a Bible in miniature. Now, these psalms are diverse, and yet they're unified. Now, why are they unified? Well, they're unified because they're centered on the one true and living God. And the psalms express that encounter between God and man. Have you noticed, if you even look at the psalms, it's, it's poetry. And because it's poetry, we slow down when we read them. The Psalms have a way of informing our intellect, arousing our emotions, directing our wills, and stimulating our imaginations. And when we read the Psalms, as we will today, when we read them with faith, we come away not just informed, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we come away transformed. 
Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Psalms help us worship. Worship on both the Lord's Day and worship every day. Worship, of course, has to be biblically grounded and guided, God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-enabled. And here we are on the first day of the new week. We're not together, but nonetheless, we are corporately worshiping in a sense. And I want to ask you all this today. Is your tank on empty? Well, then here we can refuel through God's word, through worship. Are you lost today? Then God's word calls us to return. Are, are you scattered? Is that how you're feeling today? Well, God's word, God, worship, causes us to refocus. You see, worship changes us from who we were to who we are becoming and to who we one day will be. And worship as the Psalms are central in the worship of God's people, reorients us and realigns us. Now, what do I mean? Worship as reorientation in the sense, in the case of false gods, it's the move from unbeliever to believer and worship as realignment. It's, it's worshiping the true God falsely. And it's for the growing and maturing believer to continue to grow in maturity in worship. You know, the Psalms are a treasure for the church, a precious treasure. They're a treasure for individuals. They're a treasure for families. And we neglect them to our detriment, but we pay attention to them, to our great benefit in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Now, why do we turn again and again to the Psalms? Why do we go day after day, back to these 150 chapters. Well, I think it's because of this, because the believer recognizes that while the whole world is full of injustice and suffering, God is our refuge and strength. The Psalms help us express what we are thinking and feeling. They help us to be honest, to be real. I hope you'll take some time later today to look at the something to think about quote where John Calvin writes in his preface to his commentary on the Psalms that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. With that great expression, we see that the Psalms open us up. We can see what's on the inside. It gives us language to express what we're thinking we might say as well that the Psalms are medicine for the soul that can also, after opening us up, close us up and help heal us. Psalm 37 is a long psalm. It's 40 verses. It's in the category of a wisdom psalm. You know, there are different kinds of psalms. Psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, psalms of praise. Here is a clear wisdom psalm. Psalm, a wisdom meditation, kind of similar to Psalm 1, where the Psalter starts, the gateway into the Psalms. As we look at Psalm 37 this week and next week, we'll see that it speaks to man, not to God. It reflects the world of the Proverbs, and it, it, Psalm 37 does what Psalm 1 does. It shows us two kinds of people, the wicked and the righteous, where distinctions are made, Contrasts are brought forward. 
Psalm 37 addresses a common problem caused when godless people prosper and godly people suffer. Like Psalm 25 and 34, uh, Psalm 37 is an acrostic where its, it's structure is, is the Hebrew alphabet. Every couple of verses starts with a succeeding letter to the Hebrew alphabet. Now, that really makes it tough to outline because the author, King David, is, 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 is reflecting upon a number of things and he's using this to organize uh, this, this song, this poem, this, um, uh, this psalm. But yet we will see as we work our way through it, it's united in theme. David here is addressing his fellow believers. It's, it's not a prayer or a praise, but it's instruction. It's exhortation. Today and uh, next week, we'll focus on verses 1 through 11, and we'll see where those verses establish the main theme, which is further elaborated in the rest of the psalm. Today, we're just going to look at the first six verses, and next week, verses 7 through 11, where there, the call will not be to not fret and not, the call there will be to not well, we'll see today that the call is, of course, to not fret and not envy, but next week we'll see it's joined to a call to wait, to wait patiently along with another promise as to what awaits. In, in fact, it's interesting, today it's more action, and next week it's waiting. And that's a good description, isn't it? Like, the, the Christian life is at times taking action, and the Christian life is at times waiting, and as it were, not taking action. Oh, how we need wisdom to know. You'll notice that Psalm 37 is framed by, and pay attention to this, the brief career of the wicked, verses 1 through 2, and yet it ends with the Lord's sustaining salvation of the righteous. The purpose of Psalm 37 is practical and pastoral, it, it provides assurance that any seeming injustice in life is only temporary. This psalm will encourage the godly to go on trusting God despite the apparent injustice around them. So let's look at verse 1, Psalm 37 of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Here we see the primary instruction and exhortation, fret not, be not envious. Fret not can, 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 means this, do not get heated. Do not get heated. Now, here is this overall theme. Uh, it's echoed in Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 24, 19. We're fretting. Life is unfair, and our fretting is primarily because of people, the actions with people, the interactions with people. Fret arises when we think it is unfair what is happening. It's a common activity. Then, for David and his contemporaries and us, it's a combination of worry, resentment, jealousy, and self pity. You see, it's more than just worry. It's more than just anxiety. It's, as it is expressed, literally, do not get heated. Don't let your temperature rise. 
Don't get overworked. It's constant visible worry and anxiety. It's a mixture of not only anxiety, but also anger, resentment, irritation. You know, you might say to someone, hey, I'm worried about something. And then describe your worry or I'm anxious. But you know, you don't often say I'm fretting about something because it's obvious. It's visible on the outside. You're worked up. It's, it's something that's so uh, maybe traumatic that it's expressing itself in, as it were, heat and emotion. It chews us up on the inside, on the inside. But at the end of the day, what does fretting accomplish? Nothing good, nothing positive. You see, the psalmist is not going to want us to react to the wicked using their tactics or play the game according to their rules. No, it's according to God's rules. Because here in this situation, faith is tested. And for the next few minutes, we're going to look at many imperatives. And they're here, commands, they're here, uh, they're not meant to be taken as orders as such. Rather, they are exhortations. They're both reasoned and affectionate. Here in Psalm 37, for the next few verses, is practical and pastoral encouragement. After all, who's the author? David. What did God, where was David when God called him? He was a shepherd. Here is David caring for his people, shepherding his people. Now as a wisdom psalm, Psalm 37 helps us take a good look, an accurate look at life. It puts the right glasses on, as it were. And here in Psalm 37, these first six verses, we're going to see three practical remedies as to how to get out and stay out of the pit that fretting and envy digs. You see, if fretting is not stopped, if envy is not rightly addressed, it's like shovels digging a pit. And it gets deeper and deeper and harder and harder to get out. And yet, as we will see now, there is, as it were, a ladder that rung by rung, you and I, by God's grace, can, can, can step on and, 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 and be delivered out of the pit. So here we're presented with three ways in which we are to look at life. First, we're to look ahead because you see the success of the wicked test the faith of the righteous. We look ahead because we need to have an eternal versus a temporal perspective. In other words, we've got to be forward-looking and forward-leaning. If you remember from Psalm 1, there are two destinies in view, the destiny of the righteous and the destiny of the wicked. And here, those destinies are brought into view. Why do we need an eternal perspective? 
Well, you've probably heard that expression that justice delayed is justice denied. Now, isn't that true? When we see a wrong out in society, you know, if justice is not brought to bear, if justice is not administered quickly, then we all think that that expression is accurate. Justice delayed is justice denied. And yet, God's word in general and God's word in particular says this, though justice may be delayed, justice cannot be denied. Justice will be delivered. Though it may be delayed, justice will be delivered. Now, what are those two destinies in view? There's the destiny of the wicked. And here, David uses a great illustration, a metaphor, a word picture. In verse 2, for they, that is, evildoers, wrongdoers, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. You see, grass comes up and flourishes in winter in Israel, in the land of Palestine. But in the summer, what happens to the grasses? They wither. They wither in the sun. You know, once every few weeks, you hear these words, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The destiny of the wicked is like the destiny of the grass. It withers and dies. You see, those whose main focus is the here and now, those who are trying to make this world their happy place, they're found to be living on borrowed time because it will come to an end. But you hear also in verse 6, the destiny of the righteous. Look at verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. It's interesting that for the wicked, the noonday brings withering of the grass. But in, 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 for the righteous, the noonday brings justice. Now, when it speaks of your righteousness and, and speaks of the righteous, it's not meaning sinless. No, it's rather meaning integrity. We've already seen that in some Psalms before when David speaks of my righteousness or the righteous. He's not speaking of some kind of sinless life. No, he's speaking of a humble life before the Lord, of integrity, of of. Uh, doing and, and, and saying, um, uh, there's no hiddenness. You're, you're, you're one in the same. You're, uh, you've got integrity. That's what is meant when we're speaking of the righteousness. So in addition to being called to look ahead, we're also being called here to look up. And so the second way to look at life is to look upward. Everybody's heard the expression, heads up, right? It's often advance notice of danger, right? Heads up, something's coming. Um, look up, um, get out of the way. Um, 
But it's also a, a help, isn't it? I want to give you a heads up, right? Something's coming, it needs your attention. Well, it's also like the expression, um, eyes, eyes on me, eyes on the Lord, look at me. Um, David is saying here, uh, we will see, don't clamp down or vent your frustrations, but rather redirect them. Redirect them to God. It's interesting as we see this fretting and this envy, uh, this obsession with enemies and what we think they can do to us cannot be just simply switched off, uh, but but they can only be ousted by a new focus of attention. We have to become preoccupied with something or someone else. And here the psalmist is wanting us to become preoccupied with the Lord himself. I'm reminded of a well-known sermon. Some of you may have heard me mention the title. The title itself of the sermon is the sermon. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And that is Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish pastor in the early 1800s, the expulsive power of a new affection. And here, David, when we will see what we are called to do in looking up, it is a new affection. It is a renewed affection. And it will, as it were, push out the, the, the fretting. It will push away the envy. So there's three means or three things we do in looking up. First, we trust in the Lord. The beginning of verse three, trust in the Lord. And then second, at the beginning of verse four, we delight yourself in the Lord. Find your heart's deepest joy in who God is and what he has done. And notice that is followed by a promise, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Those who delight in the Lord will see, will come to see that their desires are aligned to God's revealed will. Delight yourself. So let me, before we go on, just ask a moment, what, what are you delighting in? I mean, what brings, as it were, think about the word, light to your eyes. David here is arguing that it is the Lord that is to be the delight of our lives. And he will give us, he will remake us, he will realign us and reorient us. He will give us desires that align with who he is. Thirdly, and we see this in the beginning of verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. The idea here is you roll your cares onto the Lord. You are getting rid of a burden. Commit your way to the Lord. It's what Peter says in his first letter, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord. Here, 
David is calling the reader to trust and to be confident. Notice there are that God will act on your behalf. Three times we read, He will. He will. He will do this. I was reminded in thinking through this of, of some passages, Deuteronomy 30 and 31, where blessings and curses, but you, you see in Scripture, God will, the Lord will, over and over again. Here is this call to look upward to the Lord in faith and look ahead, look forward to the future with hope. We read in Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says these troubles and afflictions that we're in right now are light and momentary, but there is an eternal weight of glory ahead. And he says that that what is seen with our eyes is transient, but what is unseen is eternal. And through faith, we fix our eyes on that which is real, but presently unseen. Because what it looks like right now for the godly is that the ungodly are winning. That, that righteousness is not winning, but rather unrighteousness. But we have the truth of God's word and the certainty of his promises. So we've been looking at life by looking ahead, the destinies of the wicked and the righteous, looking up to the Lord and this call to trust in him, to delight in him, to commit to him. But thirdly, we see that we are to look at life by looking around. Look around. Get busy with the things that need to be done. Be constructive. And where do we see that? Look at verse 3. Right after the call to trust in the Lord are these words. And do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Do good. In a word, overcome evil with good as Paul would say to the Roman church. In other words, do not imitate evil doers or wrongdoers. Go back to verse one. Did you notice that? Fret not yourself because of evil doers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. But in verse three, do good. Doing good, of course, is not to earn or enter into a right relationship with God, but rather it's because of it. I mean, last week, didn't we see in the Heidelberg Catechism? And he, he makes me, from now on, ready and willing to live for him, right? It, he makes us, by the Holy Spirit, to do good, to live for him. And that's immediately followed by this, dwell in the land. Now, that's an interesting expression, dwell in the land. Of course, this is being written at the time where the land of Israel is a hugely significant thing. You remember the exile and the, or the, the exodus and the return and, 
uh, just the land is so significant. And here, God's people are called to this eternal perspective, but they're called also to live here and now in the land doing good. And that is followed by this expression, befriend faithfulness. Befriend faithfulness. Now, what does that mean? Now, this is a challenging translation. And I think it was hard for the original Hebrews. It's hard for us English speakers in the 21st century. What does befriend faithfulness mean? There's a lot of ways to express this. Gaze on faithfulness. Uh, Interestingly, graze on faithfulness. Keep upright in heart. Tend faithfulness. There's an idea of cultivating faithfulness, enjoying security and safety. Cultivate being faithful to God and his way. Now get this, like a shepherd tends his flock. In fact, this has really been translated um, in some ways is, is um, shepherd faithfulness. It's an interesting expression, but I think it draws our attention to let's pursue that which is good, pursue that which is faithful, um, tend it, build it up, put wind in the sails of faithfulness, water the ground of faithfulness. This is drawing our attention to trust in God, to do good, to dwell in the land, and don't befriend faithlessness. Don't become a companion to unrighteousness. No, befriend faithfulness. And what is the greatest expression of faithfulness? It's the Lord and his promises. Befriend him. Cultivate being faithful to God and his way like a shepherd tends his flock with care and time and concern. Now both dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness are reminding us to identify not with the wicked but with the righteous with the Lord's people. So before we go on, let's ask ourselves, in what way are we befriending faithfulness? In what way are we cultivating, tending faithfulness? You see, I think there is effort involved. Yes, Paul would later write, I planted Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. He who plant, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. But there is a role that we play. We are called to befriend, to cultivate this faithfulness. Let's jump all the way to the end now and look at the last two verses. And as I mentioned earlier, the themes that are developed in these first 11 verses are just reinforced over and over again throughout Psalm um, 37. But here at the end is the calm objectivity of the conclusion. It's a closing statement, a summary statement. We read in verses 39 and 40 these words, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. 
He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. You see, the psalm ends with this calmness. And that's quite a change because the psalm did not begin in calmness, but rather fret, this heated anxiety and anger, this worry, this fear, this this restlessness, and this envy, this envy of evildoers, envy of the wicked. The psalm ends differently than where it began. And it ends with the answer. You see, we see in these verses that salvation, salvation from fretting, salvation from envy, is from the Lord. Look at me. Look at with me. Salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He saves. It's his initiative from beginning to end. But salvation is not only from the Lord, it is in the Lord. You see, Who does God save? He saves those who take refuge in him. You see, our response to his initiative is us taking shelter. You see, it's both the help that he gives, his work, and it's the refuge that he is. It's his person. You see, this psalm directs our attention as all the Psalms do, but I think here in in very clear terms, it directs our attention to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the real singer of this Psalm. You see, Jesus is singing this Psalm of wisdom. Jesus, who is wisdom itself, is singing this Psalm. And throughout Jesus's life, if we examine the gospel accounts He is looking ahead, he is looking up, and he is looking around. Interestingly, Jesus was surrounded by who? Evil doers. Jesus was surrounded by wrong doers, even amongst those he called to follow him. And yet Jesus did not fret Jesus was not envious of the wicked. I want to turn our attention to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, some familiar words. You know, Peter is talking about Jesus not only being kind of our substitute, uh, our sacrifice, but, but he's our example. And we read beginning in verse 21, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Jesus really was perfectly righteous. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, this psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus. 
he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's our calling as well. Peter goes on to say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, die to the sins of, of fret and worry and anxiety and, 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 and envy and live to righteousness. Peter reminds us, by his wounds we have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A hymn I love to sing is This Is My Father's World, and it talks about the beauty of nature and creation, but verse 3 gets at this. Oh, let me ne'er forget, for oh, the wrong seems oft so strong. He is the ruler yet. Jesus sang that song as well as he went to the crucifixion, and though the wrong seemed off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And another way this psalm is fulfilled in Jesus, we saw in the words a few months ago of Acts chapter 10, where Peter makes this statement about Jesus being in the power of the Holy Spirit. He went around doing good. Isn't that a great description of our Savior Jesus? He went around doing good. You see, when we look at life, when we look at the life we are called to live, we're called to run with endurance the race set before us. Doing what? Looking ahead, yes. Looking up, yes. Looking around, yes. But in particular, looking to Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that salvation is from the Lord and salvation is in the Lord. My friends, this psalm was written so that God's people would find their rest and refuge in the Lord. This is written so that we would find rest and refuge in the midst of a difficult world full of injustices and the prosperity of wickedness. This was written so that we would find and rejoice in the rest and refuge that are found only in Jesus. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that causes us to look at life by looking ahead, looking up, and looking around. Father, would you help us to be those kind of people? And Father, when we find ourselves fretting and when we find ourselves envious of evildoers and wrongdoers, Father, help us to look at Jesus. We thank you, Father, 
not only for his example, but his substitutionary sacrifice that enables us to have a new life through which we have new power to turn from sin and to turn to righteousness. Oh, Father, would you help us to indeed delight ourselves in you, to trust in you, to commit our way to you. We thank you, Father, for committing your way to us through the promises of the gospel. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.